If you have your Bibles, um, would you please open to 1 Corinthians 15? Um, on, on the bulletin, there's one verse, which is a little misleading because we're going to cover a lot of verses in 1 Corinthians 15, but it's all going to lead to verse 58. So if you have your Bibles, it's going to be very helpful to have it open because I love when you follow along and see where I'm getting what I'm saying in the actual uh, text of Scripture. So let me read verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15 and pray, and then we'll, we'll get after it. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Father, as we open up your word now, I pray your spirit would be here. pray that Jesus, the risen Christ, our Lord, our friend, our Savior, would be magnified through the preaching of your word. I pray that people would be deeply impacted this morning. And we wouldn't just get a, just a, 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 a little inspirational talk here, but we would get revelation from you that goes deep into us and affects the way that we live, the way that we think, the way that we hope, and what we hope in. In Jesus' name, amen. So what does this verse have to do with the resurrection? <clears throat> it has a lot to do with the resurrection. In First Peter chapter 1, it was read during worship. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be, to be born again to a living hope, to a lively hope, to a hope that, that impacts our living. It's a living hope. And here at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us what a living hope looks like. As, uh, if, if you grew up in church or if you've been in church for any length of time, you know that, to, that the resurrection is, a, is, is an important thing. Uh, right, it's something we celebrate, something we sing about. However, you might have a hard time connecting that truth with how it actually affects the way that I think and hope and live when I leave here today and when I get up on Monday morning and when I get up on Friday morning and when I can't sleep on Saturday night or whatever. So verse 58 tells us what a living hope looks like. 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's treatise on the resurrection. And I would say it's the most comprehensive treatment of the resurrection in all the Bible. It explains and tells us the meaning of the resurrection and its importance. And it unpacks massive implications for those who belong to Jesus. Paul, as he goes through this chapter, it's like he's building to this great crescendo and then ends with verse 58. And he says in verse 58, the first word of the verse is, therefore. Okay? Single words like that are so important in the Bible, aren't they? Words like because or but or therefore in our, in our text here. Because what Paul is saying in light of everything that I've said prior to now, Here's what I want you to get, take away from it. Therefore, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not 
in vain. In other words, belief in the resurrection of Jesus leads to hope-filled living. Not pie-in-the-sky thoughts here and there. Not warm fuzzies deep down. But hope-filled living on the ground where the rubber meets the road. Here's the big idea I want you to take away from today. The tomb is empty, therefore our lives don't need to be empty. Because the tomb is empty, our lives don't need to be empty anymore. They don't need to be futile. They don't need to be pointless or meaningless. They have ultimate purpose now and forever because the tomb is empty. So here's where Paul takes us. And this is kind of risky, but we're going to cover the entire chapter. Not every verse, I promise. I mean, usually we get out about 11. I'm only going to keep you till 1230 today, okay? <clears throat> there you go. I know I could count on Pam. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, we're going to cover a lot of ground, uh, like at 30,000 feet, okay? Um, here's where Paul takes us. First, the resurrection is true. Second, the resurrection of Jesus guarantees our resurrection as believers in Jesus. Third, Paul shows us how we are going to be raised. And fourth, Paul tells us when we will be raised. And then all of these things are leading to this big, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So let's take those one at a time. Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. I'm probably not going to get much argument on that fact here, but the Barna Group came out with a poll, I think it was like a week or two ago. I saw it this last week. I think it was the week before that it came out. And they found that one in four British Christians do not believe in the resurrection. You did hear that right. 25% of professing Christians in Great Britain don't believe in the resurrection. Now, I hate to burst anyone's bubble, but the resurrection is kind of important to our faith, isn't it? <clears throat> in fact, I would go so far as to say, and I think, I think when, you, when you think about the implications of this, you would agree that to say you're a Christian and say you don't believe in the resurrection means you are not a Christian, it's, it's, it's a massive part of our faith. It is the central thing. It's a non-negotiable thing. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you are not a Christian at all. In 1 Corinthians 15 here, Paul tells us the dark reality of Christianity with a Jesus who is still dead. He says things like this in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. Verse 17, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Resurrection matters, doesn't it? Those 25% of British professing Christians that, put in air quotes, Christians that say they don't believe in the resurrection, they must believe in the resurrection, or they are still in their sins. And to still be in your sins is to not be a Christian. So Paul wants you and I and all the readers of this letter to be fully assured of the fact that Jesus has been raised. He wants us to have confidence. He doesn't want us to have a blind faith 
but a faith based on historical truth. He doesn't want us to live by a mystical feeling like, I feel like Jesus probably did rise from the dead. He wants us to have confidence that it actually happened. So Paul starts off with his apologetic for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's what he says in verses 3 to 8. If you would follow along with me in your own Bible. Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is of first importance to the Apostle Paul. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul gives two reasons to believe in the historical event of the resurrection. And what I mean by the historical event is that there was a day and a time about 1980 years ago when the corpse, the dead corpse of Jesus was lying in a grave and early on Sunday morning, brain waves began to move in his brain and his heart began to pump. And all of a sudden he started gasping for air and his body started to move and he got up and the grave clothes came off and the stone was rolled away and he actually walked out. Not just some spiritual, yes, I believe he died in some spiritual way. No, the man Christ Jesus, the Son of God, walked out of the tomb. Your faith must be firmly established on this truth, on this fact, and Paul wants it to be. So he gives us two reasons. First, because the resurrection is in accordance with the Scriptures. It's in accordance with the Scriptures. He says Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And we know, according to Jesus, that God's words cannot be broken. Now, Jesus spoke multiple times to his disciples of his own death and resurrection. He would say things like, you know that the Son of Man must be rejected and crucified, hung on a cross, and on the third day rise again. But since 1 Corinthians probably was written before any of the gospel accounts, more than likely, Paul's referring to only Old Testament scriptures that point to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, Peter quotes Psalm 16 in his his sermon on the day of Pentecost. After the, the Spirit was poured out and Peter gets up and begins preaching to a group of people, he quotes Psalm 16 and he says that David, who's the author of Psalm 16, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. David, in Psalm 16, looked back, he foresaw, or he looked forward, I'm sorry, looked forward, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Paul would have had this understanding and so is very comfortable saying that Jesus was raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. But Paul also gives us another reason for assurance of Christ's resurrection, and it's this. All of the eyewitness accounts, all of the eyewitness accounts, hundreds of people saw Jesus alive from the dead together. 
right? It wasn't like Jesus rose from the dead and showed himself to one dude out in the desert by himself. Right? Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't even show himself to hundreds of people, but isolated individuals all over the place. He showed himself to many people. Let's, let's see what Paul says. Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't refer to the women that Jesus showed himself to, Mary Magdalene and the others who, were, who went there the, uh, early, uh, the, first, the first day of the week, went there early and Jesus, introduced, or Jesus revealed himself to Mary Magdalene and said, go tell my brothers that you've seen me. But Paul does refer to the fact that Jesus showed himself to Cephas or Peter and then to all the apostles and then to more than 500 people at one time. And then to other apostles, and then to James, and then Paul says, and last of all, he revealed himself to me. He showed himself to me. Now, in our judicial system today, if a prosecutor has two or three credible witnesses that corroborate stories, right, they have a pretty strong case, don't they? If they have 10 eyewitnesses, credible witnesses that corroborate story, it's a slam dunk. 500 people saw Jesus at one time. Now, here's what Paul says after that. He says, most of whom are still alive. You know what Paul's doing there? Saying, of the, of the more than 500 people, I mean, like 460 are still alive. He's saying, if you don't believe me, go talk to them, right? Investigate, quiz them, see if their stories match. Paul wants us to be absolutely certain that Jesus rose from the dead. He wants you to be absolutely certain that Jesus rose from the dead. He wants you to build your life on the truth that the scriptures affirm this and that hundreds of people saw Jesus. Not crazies, not loonies, hundreds of people in their right mind saw Jesus alive from the dead. This is, according to Paul, of first importance. Of first importance. Christ was raised on the third day. And this leads to an important discovery for you and I. <clears throat> Something that I don't think we, we think about, ponder, let invade our minds and hearts the way that we ought to. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees our resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus doesn't just make possible the resurrection of his people. It guarantees the resurrection of all of those who belong to Christ. Which means if you belong to Christ, if you've repented, put your faith in Jesus, you believe that he died, was buried, and rose again, that your resurrection is guaranteed because Jesus already rose from the grave. Look at what verses 20 to 23 says say. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his first, excuse me, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. This 
is the hope the New Testament is always pushing us towards. Our hope is not for our best life now in this world. You agree with that? Our hope is not for the big payoff in this life. Our hope is ultimately not even in heaven. The New Testament affirms that our hope is that we will receive the resurrection from the dead. To explain the guarantee of this hope, Paul brings in an agricultural metaphor. He uses the word first fruits. The first fruits are the first crops a farmer can gather from a harvest. They're the first fruits. They're the first crops that he can gather from the full harvest. These fruits are a, they're a foretaste of the full har- harvest that's, that's to come. They're a foretaste or they're an anticipation of the full harvest that is sure to come. The first fruits are a sure sign of the harvest that is going to come. So when it says Christ has been raised as the first fruits, it's saying that this is in anticipation or as a foretaste of the resurrection of all those who belong to Jesus. Death came through Adam. Every person that's ever been born after Adam has received the sentence of death because of Adam. If you and I live long enough, I think it's safe to say that 100 years from now, every person, unless Jesus has come first, every person in this room will be dead. That's come through Adam. That is what we receive from Adam. The resurrection of the dead, however, comes through Christ. And every person who belongs to Christ has the promised guarantee that he or she will be raised from the dead. Have you ever had someone, I know many people here have, anyone close to you die? Most here, probably everyone here has. Someone fairly close at least. Then you know that death is a terrible enemy. Don't you? Christians should never romanticize death as though it's something that is great. Every Easter, well, over the last, since five years ago, I'm reminded of my dad. The Saturday before Easter five years ago, I got a call My dad, he had cancer, suffered with it for about a year, went through treatments, but was growing weaker and weaker and weaker. I got a call Saturday morning, the day before Easter, from my dad. He had fallen. It was unable to get up. And it was that day we decided it was time to put him in hospice care. And 10 days later, he went home to be with the Lord. You have similar stories. And as we went through that, I got an up-close and personal look at the enemy of death. It is a terrible enemy. Ray Ortland said, death profoundly offended Jesus. He didn't accept it as a part of life. He hated it and opposed it and defeated it. And so the New Testament constantly pushes us not to deny death as though, it doesn't ultima- as though it's not something that we all face, because we all do. But it pushes us to hope beyond death, to a time when Paul says in verses 25 and 26, Jesus Christ will put this final enemy of death under his feet by abolishing it once and for all. 
He hasn't done it yet. He himself has defeated death, but he hasn't abolished it, but he will. So in the meantime, we are told to rejoice in hope of the glory of God, like it says in Romans 5.2. Or Peter tells us, as, as Peter unpacks for us the dazzling inheritance that is ours, he describes it as imperishable and undefiled and unfading. He says in this inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and unfading, he says in this inheritance, which we don't get now, not imperishable. He says, in this inheritance, you rejoice, though now you go through terrible trials. I think this is why our joy sometimes, I'll speak for myself, my joy, our joy is so fickle, so up and down, and sometimes just plain weak. It's because our joy isn't in the hope of the glory of God. Romans chapter 12 says, rejoice in hope. Earlier in Romans, Paul says, hope, we don't see hope. It's something we, we can't get our hands on right now, but we, but we do have hope. We rejoice in hope. We rejoice in this inheritance that is ours. And hope has the power. It's something that's out in the future, but it has the power to reach back into the present and empower and fill us with joy. Paul goes so far as to say that if we've only hoped in Christ for the payoff in this life, we're fools. We're fools. He says we are of all people most to be pitied. Listen to what Paul says in verses 30 to 32. He says, why are we in danger every hour? Now he's talking about himself and other Christians. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If we don't have this hope, Paul's saying, if this is our only shot at happiness, let's try to get all of it that we can. But I think Paul is also saying that to be a Christian in this world doesn't make life easier. It didn't for Paul. It made life harder, more difficult. He says, I die every day. If the dead aren't raised... Let's eat and drink because tomorrow we're going to die. Now, in many ways, being a Christian is the only way to live life in this present world. But if we think outwardly it makes things easier, it just, it just doesn't. It doesn't. But Christ has been raised, and so will we be. And this leads to a question. Paul assumes the question when he asks, how are the dead going to be raised? How will they be raised? Let's see what Paul says, starting in verse 36. He says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, 
So it is with the resurrection, verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. How are the dead raised? How are we going to be raised someday? In the likeness of Christ, which means you will have a body. You will have a body with full capacity to enjoy God and enjoy his glory and enjoy his recreated presence and enjoy one another to the max. Your eternal existence will not consist in floating on clouds with a bunch of angels. Whew. I mean, doesn't every kid, isn't that what they think about when they think of heaven? I did. Maybe sometimes it still enters my mind. That's not the way it's going to be. We're going to have bodies. We won't live in a disembodied existence. You and I will be raised bodily, just like Jesus Christ was raised bodily. We see this in Luke 24, later after what was read earlier. In Luke 24, Jesus says the doors were locked. The disciples were together. Jesus appeared to them. They started freaking out, like, oh my goodness, what's going on? Is it a ghost? And Jesus said, no, it's me. And Jesus asks this interesting question. Remember, Jesus just rose from the dead. He says, do you guys have anything to eat? And they, they had some fish, of course. They gave him some fish, and it says he ate it in front of them. Why does Luke tell us that? So that we know. Our eternal existence is in a body. A bodied existence forever. I love that. When my my kids, my kids and I, we've recently been talking about heaven or eternal life. And and I remember getting into conversation with them about food. We love food in our house. Um, And I said, there's going to be food in heaven. And... I just got to imagine it's going to be the best. I mean, when we show up to the wedding supper of the lamb with Jesus at the head of the table and we're all sitting around the table with him, I think the spread is going to be glorious. (laughs) I was going to say out of this world, but of course it's going to be out of this world. It's going to be amazing. It is going to be amazing. So we're going we're gonna to be raised like Christ. There's going to be continuity with our present existence. It's going to be bod- it's gonna, we're going to have a bodily existence. But there's also going to be discontinuity with our bodies now. Our bodies now, Paul describes as perishable. They perish. They die. Our bodies now are described as dishonorable. In other words, they are corrupt by sin. Our bodies now are described as weak. They break down. I'm going to be 40. I had to think about that for a second. In about 10 months. And when I was, when I was mid-20s, and, some, and men my age would say, you just wait. You just wait. You get a little bit older, your body's going to start breaking down. Aches and pains you didn't know you had. I was like, forget that. I got to 30 
people my age would say, you just wait, it's coming, it's coming. I was like, no way. I hit 35, oh boy. All of a sudden, I started feeling these aches and pains I didn't know I had. It's almost like those guys knew what they were talking about. Our bodies break. Our bodies break. No matter how well you take care of yourself, you will get to a point where your bodies begin to break down. They're weak. Our bodies, Paul describes as natural. They are there after the likeness of Adam. The body that will be raised, however, is described this way, imperishable. It will never die again, never exposed to death again. Whether it be by car accident or by cancer or anything else, old age, it will never be exposed to death. It is called glorious, totally free from the effects of, and corruption of sin. We don't know anything in this world that's totally free from the effects and corruption of sin. It's going to be glorious, our bodies. They're going to be powerful. No more aches and pains. No more sprained ankles. No more blown out knees. No more bad eyes. No more blindness or deafness or lameness at all. And they will be spiritual. They will be after the likeness, not of Adam, but of the second Adam, of Jesus Christ. So here's the big question. When when does this happen? When will we be raised? What I want to do is simply read verses 51 to 57. I think it answers it for us. Starting in 51, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We don't use the word behold. Paul's saying, check this out. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Paul is saying, not everyone's going to be dead, but but everyone who belongs to Christ, whether dead or alive, whether their body's been buried in the ground or they are still alive, we all who belong to Jesus are going to be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 54, where Paul says, Then will come to pass what is written. He quotes Isaiah 25, verse 8. Let me read that to you. I love this. He, the Lord God, will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Because he said so. How's he going to do this? The question came up, I can't remember who it was, just just recently. I was in a conversation, a few of us, and 
are we still going to have sorrow when we're in heaven or when we're, when we're with the Lord? Are we going to remember the things that were hard here, the pain and the suffering, or, or maybe the pain of someone we knew who isn't with us? And when Paul says death is swallowed up in victory, remember death is the ultimate enemy, the final enemy, the terrible the most terrible enemy. He says death itself will be swallowed up in victory. I think what Paul means is not only that, that death, but also every other pain and difficulty and trial and suffering that we've endured in this life will all be swallowed up in victory, meaning this. The things we've gone through in this life, including death, will only serve our joy in the victory of Christ forever. This is our hope. Paul calls it in Titus chapter 3, the blessed hope, the coming of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to know that Christ is risen from the dead and his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. A life forever and ever and ever and ever that can only be described as imperishable and powerful and glorious and immortality and joy unspeakable and glorified forever. Therefore, you have an amazing future. You have an amazing future. Even if I were talking to someone, a a brother in Christ, like someone in the Middle East, you know, and, 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 and they may say, not in this world. And I might say, you're right, but you have an amazing future. It couldn't be brighter. It couldn't be better because Christ has risen from the dead. This hope is awaiting for you and I at the coming of Christ. So we return to verse 58. Christ is risen, guarantees that you will rise. You will rise to a glorious, bodily, amazing, couldn't be better eternity. And this is, this is going to happen when Jesus returns. Here's what Paul says, therefore. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let me just take a real quick those phrases be steadfast and immovable. Be steadfast. Another way to put steadfast is persevere. Endure, right? Have endurance. Be persevering no matter what. And, and immovable, immovable with all the, all the bad news and fake news and all the false philosophies that come at us every single day. Be immovable. Christ has risen from the dead. You can build your life on that. You don't have to be swayed. Of course, We go through hard things that affect us. God's not looking down saying, oh, just get over that. 
but deep in our souls we can be immovable. Not to be swayed and upset and troubled by everything. Be steadfast, immovable, and then always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always, without ceasing, never stopping to abound, overflow all the time. In what? The work of the Lord. Not your own kingdom building. The work of the Lord. His business. His work. This is not... For a group of Navy SEAL Christians, this is for the -the run-of-the-mill, ordinary, nobody Christians like all of us here. Steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Don't think of the work of the Lord as only evangelizing and singing, leading worship or preaching or it is whatever God has put before you, whatever you do in his name for his sake for his glory, which means it includes your job and includes being a husband and a wife and exhibiting and demonstrating the glory and beauty of Christ and his church in your marriage. Moms, it means being a mom to the glory of God, serving your kids well. Dads, it means Raising your kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Being present, being engaged. You taking that up. Of course it means sharing with others this hope we have. Of course it means that. It means praying for people. It means all kinds of things. It means serving in the nursery and serving in the preschool kids and serving in the other children. It means all kinds of things, greeting here at church. It means a number of things. You could go on and on and on and on. Abound always in the work of the Lord. And then, and then this phrase, knowing. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Whatever you do in the Lord's name, for his sake, for the good of others, is not in vain. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it is. But if you're building your life on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, whatever you do, the work of the Lord, it is not meaningless. It is not purposeless. It is not in vain. And we ought to to do everything we do unto the Lord with this hope that what I'm doing now, you know what I think this means, at least partially what this means? Certainly in this life, it has meaning. But I think it has meaning forever. I think it has meaning forever. There's, there's a movie, I won't tell you what it is. Um, there's a line in this movie, this guy's not a Christian. I've always thought of this line. He says, what we do in this life echoes in eternity. And whatever we do in service of the Lord for his sake for the good of others, echoes into eternity. Our own kingdom building will be burnt up on the last day. The resurrection changes everything, now and into eternity. Hope-filled living in light of the hope of glory. Just in closing, listen to what C.S. Lewis 
said in his book, Miracles. He said, the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole of human history. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been shut and locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. And everything is different because he's done so. Do you believe this? Jesus talking to Martha. John chapter 11. Martha's brother Lazarus has died. Martha and Mary are distraught. They come to Jesus and say, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Jesus has higher motives, higher purpose for allowing this to happen and coming and doing what he did. And he says to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me and dies will live, and whoever is alive and believes in me will never die. And then he looks her in the eye. I'm adding this. I think he looked her in the eye. And he said, do you believe this? Her answer, it's awesome. She doesn't say, yeah, I think I kind of do. I, I feel like I do. She said, I know that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus talking to Thomas. Remember doubting Thomas. We read this story yesterday as a family. We all know this story. Well, maybe we don't all know it. I shouldn't assume that. Many know the story. Thomas, he wouldn't believe. He said, unless I see him and can put my fingers through the holes in his hand and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. His friends were telling him. We saw him. Jesus showed up about eight or ten days later or something. And he comes in the room, and he has an agenda. He's seeking out Thomas. He said, Thomas, put your fingers in my, the holes. Put your hand in my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. And what does Thomas do? He falls down. And he says, my Lord and my God. If Jesus really rose from the dead, I mean, if this is true, a nonchalant, you know, hmm, I believe in that. Maybe. If I feel like it. <laughs> or even a, yes, I believe in it, but it has no effect upon my life. Listen, we need, we need a Thomas response. We need a Martha response. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. Tim Keller puts it this way. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, who cares what he said? Disregard all of it. If he did, though, then he is the Son of God, and you must believe and obey everything he said. And that's the response we need to give to Christ if he's risen. I'm going to ask Alyssa. Alyssa's going to come up, and this is a song that at least we haven't sung here, but I'm guessing that some have heard it before. It's a song called, O Come to the Altar, and I'm not asking anyone to come forward this morning. But I am asking you to, in your heart, and, and you can certainly sing along. If you know the song, please sing along. Um, it's, it's, it's a song that is, is worthy of being sung, I think. But in your heart, I want to ask you, if G- Jesus standing before you today, 
by his word and his spirit, saying, do you believe this? I want you to respond to him. I want you to respond. I want you to not come forward to the altar. We don't have an altar here. But to come to Christ, our high priest and king and Lord and Savior, the Son of God, who died in accordance with the scriptures and was buried and on the third day rose in accordance with the scriptures.